Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewall's Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker. Today, we have episode 317 for March 27th, 2023. And I got a new show for you today. A lot of really interesting stories to, to talk about. Not just the stories themselves, but some really interesting things we're going to learn kind of along the way uh, as we go through the, these stories. But before I get to that rundown, a couple quick notes. First of all, uh, I just passed the six-year mark for this podcast. Uh, I meant to mention it earlier, but on March 8th, 2017 is when I started this whole thing. So it's been just over six years. Hard to believe it's been going on that long. Uh, I've been kind of focusing more on the, you know, the every 100 episodes uh, as far as like, you know, big celebrations. But that's like every two years. So anyway, I thought I'd still call it out the fact that we just hit the six-year mark. I honestly never, ever go back and listen to old episodes. I know that some people do. I, I, I've gotten emails from some listeners who say, I'm, you know, I'm trying to work my way through the old episodes. And, I, you know, honestly, this this stuff changes often enough. Uh, you know, the, the landscape of security and privacy change frequently enough that, you know, I'm not sure that advice from even as much as two or three years ago is something you should lean on uh, because things change so much. If you are one of those people, if you're a completist like I am, uh, and you want to go back and try to listen to all the old episodes, that that's fine. And that's all well and good. The interviews, I'm sure, are probably the more interesting ones. Uh, just keep in mind that a lot of the advice from stuff way back then may not be, you know, still relevant. So it's also sort of job security for me, knowing that I can keep giving advice for years to come and then it will all be fresh and new. All right. One more thing before we get to the news rundown. Last week, I interviewed Casey Babcock from Bitwarden, and we talked a lot about uh, password manager solutions and why some people don't trust putting their, you know, their password vault in the cloud and why it's also kind of inconvenient sometimes to not use cloud syncing, because if you've got more than one device and you want to keep all your passwords synchronized across those devices, well, you're kind of right back in cloud territory again. Well, through some discussion on the Discord channel with uh, my patrons and a listener named David who uh, sent me an email, there is another solution to that, which uh, I knew about but didn't really talk about. And that's because it takes a little bit of effort to set up. It's maybe for someone who's a little more technically inclined, but I do want to cover some of those things as well. So if you have not heard of a service or product uh, software application called SyncThing, that's S-Y-N-C-T-H-I-N-G, it is a really cool open source project that allows for synchronization of folders like Dropbox through the internet, but without a central server out on the internet. It's strictly peer-to-peer, -peer, meaning that you run multiple instances of this software on your various devices, and as long as they are able to talk to each other over the network, they can synchronize their files uh, between each other without there really being a cloud instance or a cloud-based server where another copy of that data may res reside that could be potentially vulnerable to hacking. Now, I'm not exactly sure how well this would work. Like if you want to use a strictly local password vault solution like KeePass XC, where your vault is only ever stored in a local file folder, and then you want to layer on sync things so that you can synchronize that vault folder uh, that vault file or whatever form it comes in across your devices so that when you add a password in one of them, it shows up on the rest, or if you change your password or whatever. I'm not sure how well that plays with like iOS. I've not tried this. So if anybody has actually done this, uh, feel free to reach out to me with an email and I can do yet a further follow-up on this. Uh, but I have not personally tried it this way. But the way it should work is you would run a local-only password manager like KeePass XC, and I'll put links to all this stuff in the show notes where it would save your file locally. And then you would put that in a folder that, that sync thing would then synchronize between, let's say your iOS device and your Macintosh computer or your windows computer or your Linux computer or whatever, or all, all the above. And it should synchronize your passwords and that, that vault file across all those devices so that you can get to your passwords from anywhere. But like, for example, iOS is kind of weird. Like, I'm not sure how it deals with like folders and files in that sense. Like, can I have one app on my iPhone point to a data folder that is used by another app? I mean, that seems like the kind of thing Apple would not <laughs> would not allow to happen just for security reasons. But maybe maybe that does work. I'll have to look into that. And, but if anybody knows, let me know. I'll be glad to say something about that on the air. But if nothing else, SyncThing is a really great tool. It's a really nice way to synchronize, you know, files and folders across multiple devices. So if you're looking for a solution like that that does not require something in the cloud, check out SyncThing. 
All right, so we have a lot of news topics to cover today. Uh, we're going to start off with a really nasty Android phone bug. The four zero-day bugs uh, were all found and patched uh, for the most part. Also, hackers have been using a browser plugin to steal Gmail messages uh, and more. Popular fertility apps are engaging in widespread misuse of uh, your data, including some really sensitive stuff. Scammers are starting to use AI uh, in some even trickier schemes to trick family members out of money. CISA, the, the U.S. government cybersecurity agency, has established a really interesting ransomware vulnerability warning pilot program. Brian Krebs has an interesting article about why you should be opting out of sharing data with your mobile service provider. And of course, TikTok has been all, all over the news because they were CEO was hauled in front of Congress for a grilling. And honestly, I think it was just mostly performative. But I've got a take on that in an article to read about that. Then I've got a Dear Carrie question of the week where I'll talk about IRS authentication. That's the U.S. tax service. They have been relying on a service called ID.me that caused a lot of blowback. I've got an update on that, but it's not looking like it's ready for prime time yet. So we'll talk about that. And then we'll get to my tip of the week where I'll talk about device fingerprinting or web fingerprinting or browser fingerprinting, what it is, what it means to you and how you might try to defeat this technology or at least try to mitigate it. So lots to talk about. Let's get to it. All right, first up, let's talk about this nasty Android bug. Uh, and this is from the Naked Security blog, though it was talked about on multiple other places. This is a little bit long, but there's some really interesting other things that have come to light as a result of these bugs that I want to make sure we talk about. So bear with me a little bit, and then I've got several things I want to follow up on. So Google has just revealed a forfecta, they made that word up, a forfecta of critical zero-day bugs affecting a wide range of Android phones, including some of its own Pixel models. These bugs are a bit different from your usual Android vulnerabilities, which typically affect the Android operating system, which is Linux-based, or the applications that come along with it, such as Google Play, Messages, or the Chrome browser. The four bugs we're talking about here are known as baseband vulnerabilities, meaning that they exist in the special mobile phone networking firmware that runs on the phone so-called baseband chip. Baseband chips typically operate independently of the non-telephone parts of your mobile phone. They essentially run a miniature operating system of their own on a processor of their own and work alongside your device's main operating system to provide mobile network connectivity for making and answering calls, sending and receiving data, roaming on the network, and so on. If you're old enough to have used dial-up internet, like me, you'll remember that you had to buy a modem, short for modulator demodulator, which you plugged into either a serial port on the back of your PC or into an expansion slot inside it. The modem would connect to the phone network and your PC would connect to the modem. Well, your mobile phone's baseband hardware and software is, very simply, a built-in modem, usually implemented as a subcomponent of what's known as the phone's SOC, short for System on a Chip. You can think of an SOC as a sort of integrated, integrated circuit where separate electronic components that used to be interconnected by mounting them in close proximity on a motherboard have been integrated still further by combining them into a single chip package. In fact, you'll still see baseband processors referred to as baseband modems because they still handle the business of modulating and demodulating the sending and receiving of data to and from the network. As you can imagine, this means that your mobile device isn't just at risk from cyber criminals via bugs in the main operating system or one of the apps you use, but also at risk from security vulnerabilities in the baseband subsystem. Sometimes baseband flaws allow an attacker not only to break into the modem itself from the internet or the phone network, but also to break into the main operating system, moving laterally or pivoting as the jargon calls it from the modem. But even if the crooks can't get past the modem and onwards into your apps, they can almost certainly do an enormous amount of cyber harm just by implanting malware in the baseband, such as sniffing out or diverting your network traffic, snooping on your text messages, tracking your phone calls, and more. Worse still, you can't just look at your Android version number or the version numbers of your apps to check whether you're vulnerable or patched, because the baseband hardware you've got and the firmware and patches you need for it depend on your physical device, not on the operating system you're running on it. Even devices that are in all obvious respects, quote-unquote, the same, sold under the same brand, using the same product name, 
with the same model number and outward appearance might turn out to have different baseband chips depending on which factory assembled them or which market they are sold into. The official description of the, the bugs that were found here is ugly, but in plain English, an internet to baseband remote code execution hole means that criminals could inject malware or spyware over the internet into the part of your phone that sends and receives network data without getting their hands on your actual device, luring you to a rogue website, persuading you to install a dubious app, waiting for you to click the wrong button at a pop-up warning, giving themselves away with a suspicious notification, or tricking you in any other way. Google says that it is disclosing their existence now because the agreed time has passed since they were disclosed. Google's time frame is usually 90 days or close to it. But for the four bugs here, the company is not disclosing any details, noting that, and this is a quote from uh, Google, due to a very rare combination of level of access these vulnerabilities provide and the speed with which we believe a reliable operational exploit could be crafted, we have decided to make a policy exception to delay disclosure of the four vulnerabilities that allow for the internet to baseband remote code execution. In plain English, if we were to tell you how these bugs worked, we'd make it far too easy for cyber criminals to start doing really bad things to lots of people by sneakily implanting malware on their phones. In other words, even Google, who has attracted controversy in the past for refusing to extend its disclosure deadlines and for openly publishing proof-of-concept code for still unpatched zero days, has decided to follow the spirit of its Project Zero responsible disclosure process rather than sticking to the letter of it. The problem with bugs that are announced but not fully disclosed is that it's difficult to answer the questions, am I infected, and if so, what should I do? Apparently, Google's research focused on devices that used a Samsung Exynos, that's E-X-Y-N-O-S, Exynos-branded baseband modem component, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the system on a chip would identify or brand itself as an Exynos. For example, Google's recent Pixel devices use Google's own system-on-a-chip branded Tensor, but both the Pixel 6 and Pixel 7 are vulnerable to these still semi-secret baseband bugs. As a result, we can't give you a definitive list of potentially affected devices, but Google reports the following. Based on information from public websites that map chipsets to devices, affected products likely include mobile devices from Samsung, including those in the S22, M33, M13, M12, A71, A53, A33, A21S, A13, A12, and A04 series. Mobile devices from Vivo, including those in the S16, S15, S6, X70, X60, and X30 series, the Pixel 6 and Pixel 7 series of devices from Google, and, get this, any vehicles that use the Exynos Auto T5123 chipset. And I'll come back to that in a second. Google says that the baseband firmware in both the Pixel 6 and Pixel 7 was patched as part of the March 2023 Android security updates, so Pixel users should ensure that they have the latest patches for their devices. For other devices, different vendors may take different lengths of time to ship their updates, so check with your vendor or mobile provider for details. In the meantime, these bugs can apparently be sidestepped in your device settings if you 1. Turn off Wi-Fi calling, or 2. Turn off Voice over LTE or Volti. In Google's words, turning off these settings will remove the exploitation risk of these vulnerabilities. If you don't need or use these features, you may as well turn them off anyway until you know for sure what modem chip is in your phone and if it needs an update. After all, even if your device turns out to be invulnerable or already patched, there's no downside to not having things you don't need. All right, this article is much longer than this. I just shortened it to the important parts. But there were several really interesting things in here. Besides these really horrible vulnerabilities, first of all, did you know that your mobile device has a computer within a computer in it? That's this baseband chip. This is true of iPhones as well, though they use different chips. And as far as I know, are not vulnerable to this particular problem. So I guess because maybe this whole baseband wireless access technology is really, really tricky, most phone manufacturers hire this out. They get this technology from other companies. Even Apple, who is notorious for doing all of its own chip making, uh, still relies currently on third parties for this particular part of, uh, of the smartphone. And again, this is, a, this is a computer within a computer. This is kind of like the TPM chip on your Windows devices. Uh, it's kind of a separate thing on purpose. But most people don't know it's there. 
And when there are vulnerabilities like this one that are in there, this is not something that's widely publicized about the contents of your phone. So it's kind of hard to tell whether or not your device is affected when they find out that certain you know, makes and models of these baseband chips are vulnerable and the firmware that is loaded on these things is not something you can quickly determine by looking on your phone somewhere. Now your operating system has the capability to update that firmware. So you're looking for an operating system update that fixes the firmware bug. And again, this chip, the one that most people don't even know exists, that is really hard to know about, that is impossible to query, does some really important stuff on your phone. And they do, in some cases, share access to memory spaces on your phone such that it is possible to infect the baseband chip and then move across to the main operating system part of your phone and perhaps infect that as well. So this is a potentially serious place to have a vulnerability in your phone and it's just not well understood or known. So this exposes that. Also, this talks about this functionality called Wi-Fi calling or voice over LTE. This is a feature that's been added to a lot of modern phones. It's kind of an assistance mechanism thing where if you're having trouble getting cell signal, but you've got Wi-Fi, it's kind of a way to make cell phone calls over Wi-Fi instead of over cellular. This feature was added, I think, to iPhone a couple of years ago. Uh, it's been on Android apparently too. I think it was enabled by default. So you need to go check your settings to see if it was enabled. And if so, you could just disable it. Again, something that a lot of people probably just were never aware of, but it is there. And in this case, it is a, an avenue of vulnerability for your device. And then finally, <laughs> that note about this affecting cars, vehicles, because all modern cars come with cellular modems built in now because manufacturers want to know what's going on with your vehicle and they track all sorts of stuff uh, about you and your car. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a cell phone built into your car. Your car is a, is a driving cell phone now. Whether you paid for that service or not, your car is collecting all sorts of telemetry data and sending it up to the manufacturer probably and who knows who else. And you'll even find today that when there's a recall on your vehicle, if it's something that could be fixed by software, they will just download an update to your car over the cellular network. This is modern times. This is what we're dealing with today. But in the meantime, just know that, <laughs> that even cars can be vulnerable to cell phone exploits because cars have cell phones built into them now. So I will say that more than likely, uh, this particular set of exploits is probably only going to be used on high value targets. This is not probably going to be something that is just going to be generally done to lots of people. Nevertheless, it's a really, really serious bug. Uh, and it needs to get fixed. So if you have an Android phone, one of the ones I mentioned here, you should certainly probably turn off the, the, the Wi-Fi calling or the voice over LTE features if you don't use them, which you probably don't need them. The simplest thing is to turn those things off and just leave them off. But also, as always, as you should always be doing anyway, make sure that you're staying on top of all these software updates for your smartphones. All right, moving on. This is from Tom's Guide, and it's about a malicious... Chrome or Chromium browser extension that's being used to steal Gmail messages uh, and more. Gmail accounts are under attack from a malicious browser extension spreading via phishing emails that targets Google Chrome, Microsoft Edge, and other Chromium-based browsers, which by the way would include Opera and Brave. Once installed in your browser, this malicious extension is able to steal the contents of your Gmail messages and even infect the best Android phones with malware but more on that later. The cyber criminals behind the campaign hail from North Korea and the Kimsuki, that's K-I-M-S-U-K-Y, threat group, also called Thallium or Velvet Kolima, interesting name, has a history of using spear phishing for cyber espionage and attacks targeting diplomats, journalists, government agencies, politicians, and university professors. However, while the campaign started in South Korea, it has now expanded to both the U.S. and Europe. Even if you don't have a high-profile job, you could end up accidentally installing this malicious extension and having your Gmail account compromised, which is why we all need to remain vigilant online. The attack starts with a phishing email urging potential victims to install a Chrome extension, though it could also be installed in Microsoft Edge, Brave, and other Chromium-based browsers if a user takes the bait. The extension is named AF, and unlike normal extensions, it can't be found in Chrome's More Tools sections under Extensions. Instead, you need to manually type uh, Chrome or Edge or Brave, 
colon slash slash extensions into your browser's address bar to find it. Once installed, though, it automatically activates and begins intercepting or stealing the contents of emails from your Gmail account. If having your Gmail messages read by hackers wasn't bad enough, the Komsuki Hacker Group also has its own Android malware called FastViewer, FastFire, or FastSpyDEX. Once your Gmail account is in the hands of these hackers, they then use Google Play's web-to-phone synchronization feature for installing applications from your computer onto your smartphone to infect victims' phones with the malware. The FastViewer malware is a remote access trojan, or a rat, that allows the hackers to drop, create, delete, or steal files, as well as retrieve your contacts, make calls, send text messages, turn on your camera, log your keystrokes, and more. Suffice it to say, this malware is incredibly dangerous and could be used for blackmail or even to steal your identity. With this malicious extension in particular, it's a good idea to enter, again, Chrome colon extensions or Edge colon extensions or Brave colon extensions or probably Opera as well, depending on your browser, to see if you have it installed. If you do, you should delete it immediately. As for avoiding malicious extensions in the first place, don't ever install any extension or other software sent to you in an email. You also want to avoid opening emails from unknown senders as well as downloading any attachments that they may contain. So while you probably have not been targeted with this specifically, it's also just a good reminder that browser extensions are really powerful. I kind of think of them almost like applications being installed on your computer. If uh, the analogy being like your browser is sort of its own sandbox, its own operating system, its own environment. And within that environment, plugins are kind of like apps. And these apps can have certain permissions and they can get up to a lot of no good. So just like you shouldn't install any apps that you don't absolutely need, and you definitely shouldn't be installing apps from untrusted sources, and you should be deleting any apps that you don't absolutely need. The same is true for extensions in your browser as well. And you may have over the years added lots of extensions. There was a period of time when a lot of websites kept pushing you to install toolbars and, and other little extensions, but you really have to be aware of browser extensions because they have a lot of power. They can get, they can see a lot of your stuff. They can do a lot of tracking. They can actually install malware. So now would be a good time for you to review the extensions that you have installed in your, all your browsers, mobile and desktop, and make sure that you need everything that's there. And if not, delete it. All right, next up, this is from a website called The Conversation, which I'm not sure I'd heard of before, but I think it's from Australia, which is probably why I have not heard of it. But uh, even though this article is focused on Australia, this obviously applies to everyone around the world. And this is about a lot of popular fertility apps engaging in uh, some pretty nasty misuse of your data. New research reveals serious privacy flaws in fertility apps used by Australian consumers, emphasizing the need for urgent reform of the Privacy Act. I assume that's an Australian law, but obviously <laughs> this is a call for privacy legislation and regulation everywhere. Fertility apps provide a number of features. For instance, they may help users track their periods, identify a fertile window if they're trying to conceive, track different stages and symptoms of pregnancy, and prepare for parenthood up until the baby's birth. These apps collect deeply sensitive data about consumers' sex lives, health, emotional states, and menstrual cycles. And many of them are intended for use by children as young as 13. My report analyzed the privacy policies, messages, and settings of 12 of the most popular fertility apps used by Australian consumers, excluding apps that require connection with a wearable device. This analysis uncovered a number of concerning practices by these apps, including one, confusing and misleading privacy messages, two, a lack of choice in how data are used, three, inadequate de-identification measures when data are shared with other organizations, and four, retention of data for years even after consumers stops using the app, exposing them to unnecessary risk from potential data breaches. The apps in this study collect intimate data from consumers, such as their pregnancy test results, when they have sex and whether they had an orgasm, whether they used a condom or withdrawal method, whether they have their period, how their moods change, including anxiety, panic, and depression, and if they have health conditions such as polycystic ovary syndrome, endometriosis, or uterine fibroids. Some ask for unnecessary details, such as when a user smokes and drinks alcohol, their education level, whether they struggle to pay their bills, if they feel safe at home, and whether they have stable housing. They also track which support groups you join, what you add to your to-do list or questions for doctor, and which articles you read. All of this creates a more detailed picture of your health, family situation, and intentions. 
consumers should expect the clearest information about how such data are collected, used, and disclosed. Yet we found some of the messaging is highly confusing or misleading. Some apps say, quote, we will never sell your data, unquote. But the fine print of the privacy policy contains a term that allows them to sell all your data as part of the sale of the app or database to another company. This possibility is not just theoretical. Of the 12 apps included in the study, one was previously taken over by a drug development company and another two by a digital media company. Other apps explain privacy settings using language that makes it almost impossible for a consumer to understand what they are choosing or obscure the privacy settings by placing them numerous clicks and scrolls away from the home screen. The major data breaches of the past six months highlight the risks of companies holding on to personal data longer than necessary. Breaches of highly sensitive information about health and sexual activities could lead to discrimination, exploitation, humiliation, or blackmail. Most of the apps we analyze keep user data for at least three years after the user quits the app, or seven years in the case of one brand. Some apps give no indication when their user data will be deleted. Some apps also give consumers no choice regarding whether their quote-unquote de-identified health data will be sold or transferred to other companies for research or business, or they have consumers opted into these extra users by default, putting the onus on users to opt out. Moreover, some of these data are not truly de-identified. For example, removing your name and email address and replacing it with a unique number is not de-identification for legal purposes. Someone would only need to work out the link between your name and that number in order to link your whole record with you. When supposedly de-identified Medicare records were published in 2016, University of Melbourne researchers showed how just a few data points can connect a de-identified record to a unique individual. This research highlights the unfair and unsafe data practices consumers are subjected to when they use fertility apps, and these findings reinforce the need for Australia's privacy laws to be updated. We need improvements in what data are covered by the Privacy Act, what choices consumers can make about their data, what data uses are prohibited, and what security systems companies must have in place. The government is seeking submissions on potential privacy law reforms until March 31st. So if you're looking at the calendar, that means you've got, another, you've got less than a week. In the meantime, if you're using a fertility app, here are some steps you can take to reduce some of the privacy risks. First, when launching the app for the first time, don't agree to tracking of your data, or you can limit ad tracking via iPhone device settings. Two, don't log in via social media account. In other words, don't use the login with Facebook or login with Google or those kind of things to, to create your account. Third, don't answer questions or add data you don't need to for your own purposes. Four, don't share your Apple Health or Fitbit data. In other words, link this app to some of these other uh, services and devices. Five, if the app provides privacy choices, opt out of tracking and having your data sold or used for research and delete your data when you stop using the app. And finally, bear in mind that every article you read and how long you spend on it and every group you join and comment you make there may be added to a profile about you. So this is good advice with any app, not just these highly personal apps. But it also just goes to show that we have to have regulations. There's no other way that we're going to stop this sort of data collection and reuse. These companies are probably trying to do the right thing in terms of de-identifying your data and then sharing it. I mean, they, they're making money on this, so they probably wouldn't be doing it. But they're trying to anonymize the data by removing identifying information. But it turns out that it's, it's really easy to re-identify information, especially really personal information like this. If you get enough data points from this, it's not that hard to figure out who the person is. So there is a science around this. There is, you know, study being done on how to properly anonymize data so that it cannot be re-identified. And there are some interesting technologies like deferential privacy that puts some, you know, randomization into some of the, the, the data from some of these records such that the entire corpus can be analyzed and, and, you know, you can get averages and some statistical information from the data uh, even though the, the individual records have been kind of tweaked to be incorrect, but on the whole still, you know, have the same average kind of thing. There are things we can do and need to be doing. Uh, unfortunately, it's, <laughs> there's nothing requiring any of these companies to do them. So if you're in Australia in particular, uh, apparently you have until March 31st to give public comment on revisions to the Privacy Act, and you should definitely do so. Uh, but no matter where you are, you need to be electing representatives where you can that will take privacy seriously and will give you privacy as a human right, codified into law with agencies that will enforce those laws 
that have enough budget to enforce those laws and with real consequences, real teeth to uh, violations of those laws to bring companies into compliance. All right, next up, we've been hearing all sorts of stuff about AI lately in the news, particularly with chat GPT. And I would love to do a whole show on that at some point, though it's been talked to death everywhere. But I think it has some very interesting impacts on security and even privacy. And I'd like to talk about it from that angle, which I have not heard talked about too much. But this next article from the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, does speak to that. It's really short, but let me just read it, then I'll have some comments at the end. You get a call. There's a panicked voice on the line. It's your grandson. He says he's in deep trouble. He wrecked the car and landed in jail. But you can help by sending money. You take a deep breath and think. You've heard about grandparent scams. But darn, it sounds just like him. How could it be a scam? Voice cloning. That's how. Artificial intelligence is no longer a far-fetched idea out of a sci-fi movie. We're living with it here and now. A scammer could use AI to clone the voice of your loved one. All he needs is a short audio clip of your family member's voice, which he could get from content posted online, and a voice cloning program. When the scammer calls you, he'll sound just like your loved one. So how can you tell if a family member is in trouble or if it's a scammer using a cloned voice? Don't trust the voice. Call the person who supposedly contacted you and verify the story. Use a phone number you know is theirs. If you can't reach your loved one, try to get in touch with them through another family member or their friends. Scammers ask you to pay or send money in ways that make it hard to get your money back. If the caller says to wire money, send a cryptocurrency, or buy gift cards, or give them the card numbers and pins, those would be signs of a scam. If you spot a scam, report it to the FTC at reportfraud.ftc.gov. So there's some good anti-scam advice uh, in general right there. You know, Generally speaking, if there's something urgent, something very emotional, and they need money right away, and the way they want that money is via some method that's really hard to get back, like the ones mentioned here, that is most likely a scam. But what this one in particular is talking about is new technology that lets you clone someone's voice and have them say whatever you want them to say. This came to light several years ago using... Uh, President Obama and uh, then presidential candidate uh, Donald Trump, because they've got a lot of voice out there. They've got a lot of voice clips out there. So that could be used to train these systems, take a whole bunch of existing audio clips from somebody, and then run it through one of these AI systems to have it actually say what you want it to say. And this is not really about like taking a little snippet of someone and actually saying this word and trying to edit it all together and piece it together to say something else. This is actually training an AI on how somebody talks, you know, the way their voice puts words together and idiosyncrasies and how they pronounce certain words. And with that as training material, giving it a script and having it read that script in their voice with their style. And this technology is getting better by the day. That stuff that we heard years ago with President Obama and Donald Trump has gotten way better. So we are definitely at a point now where you just cannot blindly believe anything that you see or hear. Deep fakes, both in video and audio, have gotten really, really good. In fact, there's a system that I considered using uh, for editing my podcast called Descript. And one of the things that they allow you to do is edit your audio basically as text, like you're editing a document. It will go through and transcribe what you said. You can see what you said. You can quickly delete ums and ahs and whole sentences, and it will alter the audio where you said that. But The really crazy thing is if you submit samples of your voice to them and tell them it's okay for you to, for them to do so, this is creepy. So they want to make sure that you've opted into this, but if you opt into this feature, I can actually go back and change something I said using my own voice without having to go back and re-record me saying it. If I still had an account, I would give you an example right here, but I, I don't. All right, next up, we got some good news. And this is a short press release about a new vulnerability warning pilot program from the cybersecurity agency here in the US. Recognizing the persistent threat posed by ransomware attacks to organization of all sizes, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, announces today the establishment of the Ransomware Vulnerability Warning Pilot, or RVWP, as authorized by the Cyber Incident Reporting for Critical Infrastructure Act of 2022. 
Through the RVWP, CISO will determine vulnerabilities commonly associated with known ransomware exploitation and warn critical infrastructure entities with those vulnerabilities, enabling mitigation before a ransomware incident occurs. The RVWP will identify organizations with internet-accessible vulnerabilities commonly associated with known ransomware actors by using existing services, data sources, technologies, and authorities, including our free Cyber Hygiene Vulnerability Scanning Service. Organizations interested in enrolling can email vulnerability at cisa.dhs.gov. CISA recently initiated the RVWP by notifying 93 organizations identified as running instances of Microsoft Exchange Service with a vulnerability called Proxy Not Shell, which has been widely exploited by ransomware actors. This initial round of notifications demonstrated the effectiveness of this model in enabling timely risk reduction as we further scale the RVWP to additional vulnerabilities and organizations. And this is a quote from uh, Eric Goldstein, the Executive Assistant Director uh, for Cybersecurity at CISA. And Eric says, quote, Ransomware attacks continue to cause untenable levels of harm to organizations across the country, including target-rich, resource-poor entities like many school districts and hospitals. And you will recognize that phrase from Josh Corman, who we had on the show uh, late last year, which he, I think, coined when he was working at CISA. Back to the quote from, from Eric. The RVWP will allow CISA to provide timely and actionable information that will directly reduce the prevalence of damaging ransomware incidents affecting American organizations. We encourage every organization to urgently mitigate vulnerabilities identified by this program and adopt strong security measures consistent with the U.S. government's guidance on stopransomware.gov, unquote. So that is a great thing. I have mentioned before that they should be doing things like this. The UK had started doing some of these things like this last year, I believe. And I said, I think at that time, uh, that this would be a great thing for our government agencies to do to help us find the vulnerabilities before the bad guys do. This, this is great. We, we absolutely need to be doing uh, exactly this and things like this to try to proactively figure out where our vulnerabilities are before they get exploited. All right, next up, this is from Brian Krebs, who always has great articles. Uh, and this is about why you should opt out of sharing data with your mobile provider. A new breach involving data from 9 million AT&T customers is a fresh reminder that your mobile provider likely collects and shares a great deal of information about where you go and what you do with your mobile device, unless and until you affirmatively opt out of this data collection. Here's a primer on why you might do that and how. Telecommunications giant AT&T disclosed this month that a breach at a marketing vendor exposed certain account information for 9 million customers. AT&T said the data exposed did not include sensitive information such as credit card or social security numbers or account passwords, but was limited to, quote, customer proprietary network information, unquote, or CPNI, such as the number of lines on an account. AT&T's disclosure said the information exposed included customer's first name, wireless account number, wireless phone number, and email address. In addition, a small percentage of customer records also exposed the rate plan name, past due months, monthly payment amounts, and minutes used. CPNI refers to customer-specific metadata about the account and account usage and may include called phone numbers, time of calls, length of calls, cost and billing of calls, service features, and premium services such as directory call assistance. According to a succinct CPNI explainer at TechTarget, CPNI is private and protected information that cannot be used for advertising or marketing directly. And this is a quote from that TechTarget article, quote, an individual's CPNI can be shared with other telecommunications providers for network operating reasons. So when the individual first signs up for phone service, this information is automatically shared by the phone provider to partner companies, unquote. Is your mobile internet usage covered by CPNI laws? That's less clear, as the CPNI rules were established before mobile phones and wireless internet access were common. TechTarget's CPNI primer explains, quote, under current U.S. law, cell phone use is only protected as CPNI when it is being used as a telephone. During this time, the company is acting as a telecommunications provider requiring CPNI rules. Internet use, websites visited, search history, or apps used are not protected CPNI because the company is acting as an information services provider not subject to these laws, unquote. Hence, the carriers can share and sell this data because they're not explicitly prohibited from doing so. All three major carriers, and of course they're talking about AT&T, T-Mobile, and Verizon here in the U.S., 
say they take steps to anonymize the customer data they share, but researchers have shown it is not terribly difficult to de-anonymize supposedly anonymous web browsing data. This is a quote from Jack Morris uh, at Mashable, quote, Your phone, and consequently your mobile provider, know a lot about you. The places you go, apps you use, and the websites you visit potentially reveal all kinds of private information. For example, religious beliefs, health conditions, travel plans, income level, and specific tastes in pornography. This should bother you, unquote. Happily, all the U.S. carriers are required to offer customers ways to opt out of having data about how they use their devices shared with marketers. Why should you opt out of sharing CPNI data? Well, for starters, some of the nation's largest wireless carriers don't have a great track record in terms of protecting the sensitive information that you give them solely for the purposes of becoming a better customer, let alone the information they collect about your use of their services after that point. In January of 2023, T-Mobile disclosed that someone stole data on 37 million customer accounts, including customer name, billing address, email, phone number, date of birth, T-Mobile account number, and plan details. In August of 2021, T-Mobile acknowledged that hackers made off with the names, dates of birth, social security numbers, and driver's license numbers information on more than 40 million current, former, and prospective customers who applied for credit with the company. Last summer, a cyber criminal began selling the names, email addresses, phone numbers, social security numbers, and dates of birth on 23 million Americans. An exhaustive analysis of the data strongly suggested it all belonged to customers of one AT&T company or another. AT&T stopped short of saying the data wasn't theirs, but said that the records did not appear to have come from its systems and may be tied to a previous data incident at another company. However frequently the carriers may alert consumers about CPNI breaches, it's probably nowhere near often enough. Currently, the carriers are required to report a consumer CPNI breach only in cases, quote, when a person without authorization or exceeding authorization has intentionally gained access to, used, or disclosed CPNI, unquote. But that definition of breach was crafted eons ago, back when the primary way CPNI was exposed was through pretexting, such as when the phone company's employees are tricked into giving away protected customer data. While it's true that the leak of CPNI data does not involve sensitive information like social security or credit card numbers, one thing AT&T's breach notice doesn't mention is that CPNI data, such as balances and payments made, can be abused by fraudsters to make scam emails and text messages more believable when they're trying to impersonate AT&T and fish AT&T customers. The other problem with letting companies share or sell your CPNI data is that the wireless carriers can change their privacy policies at any time, and you are assumed to be okay with those changes as long as you keep using their services. For example, location data from your wireless device is most definitely CPNI, and yet until very recently, all the major carriers sold their customers real-time location data to third-party data brokers without customer consent. What was their punishment? In 2020, the FCC proposed fines totaling $208 million against all the major carriers for selling their customers' real-time location data. If that sounds like a lot of money, consider that all the major wireless providers reported tens of billions of dollars in revenue last year. For example, Verizon's consumer revenue alone was more than $100 billion last year. If the United States had federal privacy laws that were at all consumer-friendly and relevant to today's digital economy, this kind of data collection and sharing would always be opt-in by default. In such a world, the enormously profitable wireless industry would likely be forced to offer clear financial incentives to customers who choose to share this information. But until that day arrives, understand that the carriers can change their data collection and sharing policy when it suits them. And regardless of whether you actually read any notices about changes to their privacy policies, you will have agreed to those changes as long as you continue using their services. Now, this article does have uh, details on how to go to each of the U.S. carriers to stop the sharing of this CPNI data. I'm not going to go into those details here. Uh, but if you go to the show notes and click on the article, you can find the, the information there for AT&T, Verizon, and T-Mobile. Now, I'm not sure how this works for carriers outside the U.S., but at least if you're in the EU, you probably already have some privacy law protecting you. All right, one more short article, and this is from the Washington Post, and it's about TikTok, which I just felt obligated to talk about since it's been all over the news this week, since the CEO from TikTok got hauled in front of the U.S. Congress to be grilled by a bunch of... <laughs> by a bunch of politicians basically trying to look good for their constituents. <laughs> so uh, you can already see where I'm going with this, but let me, let me read you this brief article from the Washington Post, and then I'll, I'll give you my quick take on this. 
For a brief moment in a five-hour house hearing on Thursday, TikTok's CEO, Xu Zi Chu, let his frustration show. Asked if TikTok was prepared to split off from its Chinese parent company if ordered to do so by the U.S. government to safeguard Americans' online data, Chu went on the offense. Quote, I don't think ownership is the issue here. With a lot of respect, American social companies don't have a great record with privacy and data security. I mean, look at Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, unquote. Chu said, referring to the 2018 scandal in which Facebook users' data was found to have been secretly harvested years earlier by a British political consulting firm. He's not wrong. At a hearing in which TikTok was often portrayed as a singular, untenable threat to Americans' online privacy, it would have been easy to forget that the country's online privacy problems run far deeper than any single app, and the people most responsible for failing to safeguard Americans' data, arguably, are American lawmakers. The bipartisan uproar over TikTok's Chinese ownership stems from the concern that China's laws would allow its authoritarian government to demand or clandestinely gain access to sensitive user data or tweak its algorithms to distort the information its young users see. The concerns are genuine, and yet the United States has failed to bequeath Americans most of the rights it now accuses TikTok of threatening. While the European Union has far-reaching privacy laws, Congress has not agreed on national privacy legislation, leaving Americans' online data rights up to a patchwork of state and federal laws. In the meantime, reams of data on Americans' shopping habits, browsing history, and real-time location, collected by websites and mobile apps, is bought and sold on the open market in a multi-billion dollar industry. If the Chinese Communist Party wanted that data, it could get huge volumes of it without ever tapping TikTok. In fact, TikTok says it has stopped tracking U.S. users' precise location, putting it ahead of many American apps on at least one important privacy front. That point was not entirely lost on the members of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, which convened Thursday's hearing. Last year, their committee became the first to advance a comprehensive data privacy bill, hashing out a hard-won compromise, but it stalled amid qualms from House and Senate leaders. Likewise, worries about TikTok's addictive algorithms, its effect on teens' mental health, and its hosting of propaganda and extreme content are common to its American rivals, including Google's YouTube and Meta's Instagram. Congress has not meaningfully addressed those either. So, yeah, I basically agree with this. TikTok, okay, first of all, there's, there's no way that TikTok is going to sell itself to some U.S. company. I mean, that's just not going to happen. I mean, let, what what if China came to us and said, you know what? We don't trust Facebook. So you need to sell Facebook to us, to some company owned in China. That it just, it just wouldn't happen. I don't see that happening with TikTok either. So it's probably going to get banned. I mean, the way things are going. I mean, right now we've just got this political thing with China. So a lot of our politicians are grandstanding and trying to look protectionist and trying to do something about this uh, supposed Chinese threat. I mean, look, the Chinese government is obviously a repressive regime, but we talk about other countries banning our apps and banning our services, and we call them being repressive when they do it. The fact of the matter is TikTok itself is not the problem. We need privacy legislation. We need privacy rights. As far as collecting data that could be used to compromise our citizens or our politicians or our military leaders or whatever, we don't need TikTok for that. There are many American companies that are collecting plenty of information that could be bought or hacked or stolen because we allow them to. I think we've really kind of made TikTok a boogeyman here. Yes, there are potential abuses of this data, but you don't need the TikTok app to get that data. And yes, there are you know possibilities that some of these algorithms could be used to try to influence Americans, but that has already happened with other companies as well, including American companies like with Cambridge Analytica. So I I don't know what's going to happen here. It sure is looking like we're, they're going to try to ban TikTok somehow in America. I don't know how that's going to work. I certainly don't believe that TikTok is going to submit to to being owned by an American company somehow. This is, this is just really ugly, and, I, and we're going about this the wrong way. All right, so that was your news for the week. So we've got a quick Dear Carrie question, and then we'll do our tip of the week. All right, so Stefan sent me actually several questions, but one of the ones he, he sent me recently was about the IRS here in the United States, which tax time is coming up quickly. So I thought now would be a good time to talk about this. And this company that is doing authentication for the IRS website called ID.me. 
Here's Stephen's question. Last year, to reach the IRS, they were wanting people to sign up with ID.me. That seemed to get shot down last tax season, but appears to be back again this year. What I am hearing from my tax advisor is that they are not answering the phone, and the only way to converse is through the IRS website, which now requires an ID.me. Is this something you have covered, or what are your thoughts? So first of all, a little bit of background, and it looks like this might be changing based on this article I found from a website called FCW. I'm not really sure what that is, but let me just read this and I'll talk about it. Less than a month out from tax day, the IRS is preparing to implement a government-operated identity verification system, login.gov. Taxpayers will be able to use the single sign-on tool to access tax documents and make payments through irs.gov as soon as next week. And this was like, two weeks ago when this article came out, I think March 13th. The news comes one year after the IRS faced outcry over requirements for taxpayers to verify their identities using facial recognition technology from vendor ID.me to access online IRS accounts, and one week after an internal audit showed login officials had paused efforts to implement similar technologies and misled agencies about those plans. As the 2022 tax season wound down, the IRS pledged to work with the General Services Administration, which operates login.gov, to add the service as an option for users. The tax agency cited the need for higher security standards and scale for login.gov. Once fully integrated, taxpayers will be able to log into irs.gov using their login.gov credentials, which are in use at a host of other federal websites, including benefits sites run by the Department of Veterans Affairs and the Social Security Administration. Okay, so that, that sounds good. That sounds like they're trying to replace id.me again. And, and again, the controversy, we talked about this last year, was that ID.me was a third party and wanted all sorts of really invasive information uh, and using other techniques to try to verify your identity, all going to a non-governmental third party in order to use a governmental website. And so I thought that was off the table now. I thought they had gone away from ID.me. Uh, but when I went to check my own IRS.gov account and when I went to go log in, it gave me precisely two options. I could log in within my email address, which is the account that I had set up a long time ago, you know, just standard username and password, or I could log in with, you guessed it, ID.me. And that is as of March 25th, supposedly they were supposed to move over to login.gov, but I saw no evidence of that when I went to the irs.gov website. So maybe it's still coming, I don't know. But the sad fact is, is <laughs> you can only do what you can do. And it looks to me like right now, your options are still ID.me. But if you want to hold on a little bit longer, you might wait to see if login.gov finally does become an option because that at least is not ID.me and it's something that's run by the US government uh, along with other websites. And by the way, I, I've got a login.gov account. I went to login.gov with a separate login uh, and I, I could log into that as well. But once I logged in there, I couldn't see any way to get to the IRS from there or actually any of my other accounts. So that was kind of weird. I guess I could just manage my account. But anyway, so unfortunately, the answer to your question is it doesn't look like you have any other options right now. But supposedly, you will be getting a new option any day now. So keep an eye out for that. And, and hopefully, the login.gov will become an option. All right. So for the tip of the week, as usual, it's uh, related to an article that I wrote for my blog and newsletter subscribers. And this is about fingerprinting. And this came to my attention a couple different ways in the last week. So I thought it'd be a good to talk about it. And I'll just give you the, the brief version here. And if you go to the, the firewalls, don't stop dragons website, or look in the show notes, you'll find the article to the full version of this. But basically this is just another way that we are being tracked around the web. And unfortunately it's extremely clever and it's really hard to bypass. Advertisers want to track you everywhere you go. They want to know all the places you go, how much time you spend there, what you do on those sites and correlate all this data so they can build this dossier on you and eventually, you know, use it to sell you stuff. And there's lots and lots of companies doing it, including Google and Facebook. But there's also many other data brokers out there who are doing this independently and selling it to others and correlating it and collating it. And <laughs> it's, a, it's a total wild west free for all for your data. But what they want to do is they want to, see where you go. They want it. They want to track what you do on the web. And so they first use cookies, you know, third-party cookies to do this years ago. They're still using them now, but so many browsers are blocking third-party cookies. They had to try other things. They, you know, they tried tracking you via your IP address, you know, but if you use a VPN, then you can hide your IP address. This sort of cat and mouse whack-a-mole thing where they keep coming up with new technologies to track us. And then browser makers and other privacy tool makers come up with techniques for blocking this tracking. So it's this back and forth. Well, 
they have come up with this other technique called web fingerprinting or device fingerprinting or browser fingerprinting, depending on who you talk to, that is really, really quite clever. And, and the way it works is this. <laughs> when you go to a website today, your browser hands over some information every time you go there, including what browser you're using, what operating system you're using, and what specific versions of each that you're using. And then through JavaScript APIs, these websites you go to can also query your browser to get even more information, like what fonts do you have installed? What is the current size of the window they are using to look at my website with? How big is the monitor they are using total size in case I want to go full screen? Are they on a mobile device? Are they on a laptop? Are they on a desktop? What plugins do they have installed? If I need a certain media player, I might need to know that uh, before I send you a response. Because if you don't have something, maybe I need to prompt you to install it. These are all actually perfectly valid questions in certain scenarios. Knowing the answers to these questions can let the website optimize its response to give you the best possible view of their website. I mean, just think of mobile versus desktop. You know, the size of the screen is very, very different. For one thing, it's long and thin on a mobile device. It's, you know, kind of oriented in a portrait mode where most, you know, monitors on laptops and computers are in landscape mode. It's wider than it is tall and it's much, much bigger. So knowing how big the screen is that I'm going to display something might affect how I want to lay out my website. Knowing what fonts you have installed. If I want to do something fancy, but you don't support that font, then I need to kind of dumb it down and give you something different. But here's the problem. Somebody figured out that if I ask all these questions that happen to have very detailed responses, I mean, think of, you know, if I get the exact size of the window that you're, you're, you're using in your browser right now, plus the exact size of the, your whole screen, and I know what operating system version you're running, I know what browser you're using and what version of that browser is. I know the complete list of all the fonts you have installed. Uh, if I start looking at all those things and combining those together, if you think of all those as like questions that can be asked about your device by the website you're visiting, the answers to all of those questions in total paints a unique picture of you because the likelihood that somebody else is going to have the exact same answers to all of those questions turns out is pretty small. So they do this, they collect this data along with some other really weird things. Like just to give you an example, your web browser has this canvas capability, an HTML canvas capability where I can, as a website, I can tell your web browser to draw something, including just like a letter. Like let's say I want tell, I tell your web browser, I want you to draw a 20 point font, uh, a capital letter R. The way that your particular computer draws that character. And if you, if you've ever zoomed in on text, you know, with using like a, a, a picture editor and you get real close, you'll see that it's not clean, right? It's, there's a bunch of pixels in there and they have differing levels of gray and how it smooths those things around is different for each one. It's actually possible for this website to tell your browser to, to paint this letter in a certain size and a certain font off to the side in, in, a, in an area of the screen where you can't even see it and then zoom in on how it drew that capital letter R and recognize the differences in how your computer draws that letter R versus someone else's computer. That's called canvas fingerprinting. So anyway, there's all these various ways that the websites you visit and the browser that you're using working in concert can gather a lot of very specific information and characteristics about your device such that they can from website to website recognize that you are the same device and then by inference the same person so it, it's like a fingerprint in the real world if i find a fingerprint on a murder weapon and then i find a fingerprint on you know, a, a glass at, at the bar. And I say, Hey, the, the same person who held this glass was also the person who held the murder weapon. I know they're the same person. I don't necessarily know who that person is, but as soon as I do, as soon as I figure out, well, I knew that the person holding that glass at the bar was this person because the bartender told me so, or this video camera that was at the bar shows that this person is the person who held the glass. Now I know that whoever has that fingerprint, including the fingerprint that's on the murder weapon is the killer because I know that that person is Joe Schmo or whatever. It's the same thing with web fingerprinting. They don't initially know 
who you are necessarily. But as soon as you go to a website and let's say log in, if you have an account on this website and now they know who you are because you told them who you are, you've logged into your account, then they do the fingerprinting and now they can say, oh, Carrie, this is Carrie's device fingerprint. If I ever see this device fingerprint again, even if they don't log into that site, even if they don't identify themselves in any other way, I'm pretty sure that's gonna be Carrie. Now, this fingerprinting is device specific, so they can only identify you by your device. If you've got more than one device, it might be trickier to, you know, take those fingerprints and so they might still have to figure out that, that okay, this, this you've got multiple fingers, right? Just like you, you've got multiple devices probably, but they could still say, well, I got a thumbprint here and I got a index fingerprint there and I got a pinky fingerprint there, but I've identified all those to belong to one hand and that hand belongs to Carrie Parker. So this is really hard to block. This is really hard to defeat, but there are two basic approaches to this. First of all, you want to not be unique. You don't want to stand out. You want to look like a, just a face in the crowd. You want your fingerprint to be common, meaning that you want the answers to all of these detailed questions to be banal, to be milk toast, to be common. You don't want to stick out in the crowd. You want to look like everybody else. But unfortunately, our devices are different, right? We're all using different devices with different screen resolutions or whatever. So what do you do? So if you use the Tor browser, for example, or if you use Firefox with this new feature that they are making available that actually came from Tor browser, if you don't know it, Tor browser is a privacy based browser uh, that is based on Firefox, and it has had this feature for a while, by default, I think. Uh, and now Firefox is exposing this to users if they want to try it out. But it's got problems. This is going to be, it, it's got issues. So basically what happens is, is they lie about some things, like they give a generic response to your operating system and your browser version to try to make it as common as possible. They report, and they actually try to restrict like the size of the window that you view it on to a certain specific size, like 500 by 1,000, which means in the Tor browser, actually, that when you go to adjust the size of your browser window, if you want to make it bigger, it'll pop up a warning and say, hey, I know you just changed this, but if you change this, you're going to look unique. And we're trying to not do that. So it recommends that you don't actually change the size of your browser window. Other things that it can do is it when it reports what time zone you're in, it just automatically says that you are on UTC time, which is Greenwich Mean Time, London time, no matter where you are, which might screw up what they are going to show you, right? I mean, if they think that you're in London or in the London time zone, you know, that might affect what they show you. And so it could be wrong. So anyway, there is this feature if you want to look it up and try it out yourself. And I actually recommend you do just so you can understand what this does is to, to your browsing experience. It's something called resist fingerprinting. It, it's in the show notes. If you go and find the article, if you go to Firefox, it'll tell you how to enable this special feature with the about colon config settings. These, these are kind of hidden, hidden settings that are super user settings that are not something they normally put in the regular preferences. Anyway, if you enable resist fingerprinting, you will start to see the compromises that you need to make to try to blend in. Now, I said there were two things that you could do, two approaches to this problem. The other thing you could try to do, and this is something I kind of wish we would do more of, is you just need to lie and you need to kind of randomize the answers to your questions. So if I say, how big is the window that you're using right now? Let's say it's really 500 by 1,000. Why not say it's 501 by 1,001 when I'm on this website? And when I go to another website, I'll say it's 499 by 999. That's pretty close. That's almost the right answer. And it shouldn't really cause any problems if they assume that's the, the size of my screen and respond appropriately, because I'm almost that size. But it, it, it fuzzes the data. It puts a little bit of randomness into that data just so that my answers aren't all the same. There's only so much that you can do, but nevertheless, I think that is something that we should consider doing and have, having that built into our browsers as well. One thing to note, by the way, is that things like private browsing mode doesn't help you at all in this case, neither does a VPN. That might hide your IP address, but all these other characteristics I'm talking about are independent of whether or not you're connected to a VPN. Blocking cookies won't help in this, in this situation. This is really tricky to defeat. And again, and again, what we really need is we need privacy rights. It's important that we keep working on these anti-fingerprinting tools. I think that's good to do. I think we should also be revising the HTTP and HTML web protocols to not give away so much info and to prompt us into, you know, giving us more choices as to when we want to give that information away. But what we really just need to do is give consumers the legal right to privacy 
and then provide some sort of simple, unique mechanism by which to assert that right, like global privacy control. Okay, so there is your news, your Dear Carrie question, and your tip of the week. All right, everybody, thanks for tuning in. We're running long, so I'll keep this really short. A couple things before we go. I have got these really cool new Dragon Challenge coins that I made last year, and I need to start finding some more reasons to give those away. What I really want to do is challenge people to help other people and you know have you earn these coins, but I haven't figured out how to do that yet. But anyway, stay tuned. I will be having some sort of giveaway or contest for the really cool dragon challenge coins. And if you want to know what those are, go to firewalls, don't stop dragons and, and just search on challenge coin. You'll find it, but I will be doing something with those. I don't know. Next couple months for my higher level patrons, Merlin's musings this week will be my discussion of how to use PGP part two. That'll come on Thursday as always. And next week, we'll have our panel discussion with a couple other great privacy advocates, Nate from The New Oil and Nick from privacyguides.org. That was a really fun discussion, and you'll be getting that in our interview next week. I've also got some interviews in the works. I'm trying to get Patrick Wardle to come back. We're going to talk about Mac security. And I've also got an, uh, an IoT security expert uh, that I want to interview sometime soon, too, as well as many other people. So anyway, subscribe if you haven't. Lots of great stuff coming down the pike. All right, everybody, take care out there. Go get your Dragon swag at the merch store. If you want to support the mission here, check me out on Patreon. The fifth edition of the book is out. It's great. Buy it for yourself. Buy it for others. And check out the newsletter and the blog at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. Take care, everybody. Stay safe out there. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your garbage down. <laughs>